Our scripture for today is Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you please to join with me in prayer. Uh, Lord, again, um, as we are reflecting and we will be reflecting on this psalm, we will be talking about you, uh, talking about worshiping you. And yet, Lord, as we do that, we never want to forget that we are talking about you in your presence. And more than that, you are actually speaking to us through your word. So Lord, please, as we listen, help us to encounter you, to see you, to hear you, to draw nearer to you. Would you please um, lead us to yourself through your word? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as the year begins, we're starting a new series, a series on Romans that will really kind of be kicking off next week. This week, in some ways, is just kind of a, a prologue, kind of a meant to orient us to, I think, one of the central questions we'll be thinking about in Romans, some of the central issues we'll be thinking about in Romans. And so I want to just kind of begin by asking a simple question or thinking about a simple question. How shall you spend your life? I actually think, if you think about it for a moment, this is in some ways the question of our day. Almost every generation, every century has different questions that people are wrestling with. You might say, if we were to go back in ancient Israel, the question was, which God should we worship, right? That's what we were seeing in Judges. Um, If you think about last century, one of the questions that people seem to be really be haunted by is, how can I know that I'm right with God, especially when I die? But it seems that some of the questions about God in our day have kind of moved to the background because we are so kind of focused on just the questions that relate to the fact that we have almost limitless options. And this is something that's new to our moment in a way that it never has been before. If you, for almost all of human history, up till at least a century ago, maybe even less, Almost everything about your life was determined for you before you were even born. 
You were going to be born into a community that would give you a sense of, of values, ethics, religious beliefs. They were there before you, and you just kind of entered in and took on them. Your script was essentially already written for you. You almost certainly were going to do the same thing your parents did. You were going to live for all of your life in the same community into which you were born, marry someone from that community. Really, the only choice you had was what kind of person do you want to be in the life that has already been given to you? But you and I know that is not how things are right now. It's, it's not just that you could now live in any town you want to. You could live in a totally different country from which you were born. It's not just that you can choose a different job than your parents had. You can choose a different job than you had last year or the year before. And it's up to you, we are told, to figure out what are your values? What are your priorities? What is the faith that you believe in? What is your sexual identity? For the first time in human history, Everything is on the table. You get to create your life from A to Z. And while that is seen as progress, while that is seen as freedom, I think many people are experiencing all of these decisions as crushing. So many decisions. And what makes it hard is it's not just that we have to decide everything about our life but that we're in a time where no one is supposed to tell anyone what they're supposed to do. No one is supposed to tell anyone else, here's what's right, here's what's wrong. So you are having to decide without having any standards to know whether it's a good or bad decision. Imagine if, that were like, if we were like that in school. Imagine your final class in college where you had to pass to pass through college and you had a single assignment. And the single assignment, you are not given any instructions, no rubric. You don't know what you're supposed to do. And what's more, the teacher will not tell you how they're going to grade, and you're just supposed to do it and hope that you pass at the end. I mean, is it any wonder that people are so anxious? That is the life that we're living right now. We are supposed to figure out, without being told how, how to live a life that's meaningful. We're supposed to figure out, without being given any other standards, because no one is going to judge us or tell us how to do things, how to live a life that is fulfilling and joyful. We are supposed to figure out on our own how to have a resilience in the face of suffering. And no one will tell us how, because no one feels like they can. Is it any wonder that kids growing up in high school and college right now are expressing unheard of levels of anxiety and depression. How should I spend my life? Will someone please tell me? Is the cry that many people are making. Now what's interesting to me as we think about this is that while we're talking about a very new phenomenon, we're actually at the same time talking about a very old question. Because what we're talking about, whether we realize it or not, is worship. Now, I realize that might seem like I've suddenly changed topic, but that's only because we wrongly limit the way our thinking of worship is, usually to what happens on Sunday, maybe only to what happens when we sing. That's worship. And kind of, yeah, that's right, it is. But it's kind of like saying health is a class we take in high school instead of gym. 
I mean, health is a class we take in high school instead of gym, many of us. But that's not what all of health is. Health is way bigger than that. And, and yes, when we are here on Sunday morning, there's something really important for us as we gather together, as, as we are worshiping. There is an orientation that's taking a place. There are practices that we are engaging in, but their goal is beyond themselves to all of life. Worship is what we do with all of our lives. Worship is way bigger than what happens on Sunday morning. If we, if we want a definition of what worship is, we might simply say, worship is the act of giving ourselves to what we value most. What do you value most? However you might say the answer right now, you actually will be answering the question by what you do as you leave and what you do the next day. What you do with your energy, what you do with your time, what you do with your attention reveals what matters most to you. That is what you worship. You worship what you spend yourself on. How should I spend my life is answered by the same question that answers what should I worship? We all worship. The only question is, what is the object of our worship? And when we reframe the question this way and realize that what people are asking, whether they realize or not, is what should I worship? Then we realize that Christianity offers a very clear and specific answer to the question everyone's asking. How should I spend my life? Won't somebody please tell me? The Bible says, yes. You should spend your life on God. Which I realize now suddenly seems like we've done a, a, a given an abstract and, and churchy answer, the kind of thing a pastor is supposed to say. But before you tune me out, I'd, I'd like you to just consider that Christianity here is saying something actually that I think deep down we realize is true. And that is, while every life is equally precious, not every way of life is equally good. You and I know that some pathways of life are unwise, that some ways of choosing to live meet dead ends. And meanwhile, that there are other lives we look at them that are good and beautiful. Not every life is equal. And what, what the Bible tells us is that the single determining factor in the end that divides those lives that are dead ends or those lives that are good and beautiful is in worship. That to have a true and a truly good life comes as we worship the true and good God. This we see a conviction that kind of runs through the psalm that David writes that we just read. Look just for a moment at verses 3 and 4, and you'll see there um, two groups of people who are being described. The first one, David says, those are my guys. I'm, I love them. And, and verse, the second one, he's like, I don't want to have anything to do with them. And, and who's the first group? The first group he describes as the excellent ones, the great ones. These are the people whose lives are good, are admirable, what I want. And the second group he talks about as those who have sorrows run after them. They are the miserable ones, the ones whose way of life is ultimately a dead end. And what's the difference? Well, the first group is described as the saints. 
which in this context are those who worship the Lord God. And meanwhile, the second group are described as those who run after other gods. The determining factor between whether or not you are able to live a truly good life is whether or not you are worshiping the true and good God. And I realize we're entering into some politically incorrect territory here. Isn't it the case that we're not supposed to tell anyone what or whom they should worship, that we're supposed to leave that to each person as they kind of decide things for themselves? I recognize that is the question or the way that we oftentimes think in our day, but just just consider this for a moment. Let's just assume for a moment that there is something that we would call reality, something that stands outside of ourselves that exists whether we believe it or not. I think we can all agree on that. But let's say even more than that, there is a God who exists outside of ourself, who is who He is whether we know Him rightly or not. If that is the case, wouldn't it be a good thing to actually know who that God is? And if that God is actually the one who made us, wouldn't it make sense that knowing and serving that God would make a significant difference to our lives? But you might say, okay, but how? How is it that, that the idea of worshiping or spending our lives on God will make all of the difference? Well, that's what our psalm is about. The opening verse, we see the decision to worship, and the final verse, we see the outcome. So he says three things that he is going to do in verse 16. He says, in you I take refuge. He says, you are my Lord. And he says, I have no good apart from you. These are three expressions of worship. And in the end, we see the outcome. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And everything in between, he explains how he gets there. And I'd like to consider, there's three here, and I'd like to consider each of these, three ways in which as we are worshiping the true and good God, we come to experience a truly good life. First, as we come to worship the true and good God, we come to experience a guidance that is wiser than our deepest intuitions. He says, you make known to me the path of life. The question in some ways that we've been asking from the very beginning of this sermon is, is about discernment. How do we know? How do we know how to do what is good? And while I said in some ways no one gives an answer, that's not completely true, is it? There is an answer that we're hearing again and again. Listen to the deepest part within you. Listen to your heart, to your dreams. Listen to that inner voice that no one else knows besides you. And follow that. Follow it wherever it takes you, no matter how much you experience failure or fear. Allow who you truly are to determine what your life will be. That is what we hear in like a thousand different movies and all sorts of songs and the great motivational posters that we have throughout our workrooms. Isn't that the advice that we're given? The only problem with it is, both at an empirical and scientifically level, it has been shown to be bonkers. I mean, just 
Just think about your experience. How many times have you seen people following their gut, following their deepest intuition to do something stupid? Like, think of all the people who have believed that they're going to be the next rock star and try out an American Idol and cannot hold a tune. They're following their heart. Or think of people who are just convinced that they are the next super entrepreneur with one failed business after another failed business because they are going to pursue their dreams no matter what. Or think of people that we have seen who have ruined a family because they're following heart into an adulterous relationship. Does that really look like it's working? And we shouldn't expect it to. Science has shown that there is a reason to believe that our heart is unreliable. Some of you might know a man by the name of Daniel Kahneman, who's a psychologist who's written the book Thinking Fast and Slow. And one of the main focal points of this book is how while our intuitions are amazing, our intuitions are so often wrong. Like there are just things that are flawed about our gut that shows that again and again in certain situations we will make mistakes. And the thing is, we know that. We know that because we look at all the other people who are following their intuitions and we go, what are they thinking? Until it comes to us. And then it's different. Like, perhaps you're familiar, there's this, um, this fairly well-known scene on Arrested Development where a man is talking with his wife about kind of considering a decision that other people have tried, and his wife asks the question, well, but did it work for those people? And he responds, no, it never does. I mean, these people somehow delude themselves into thinking it might work for them, but it might work for us. And that's us, isn't it? Like, we look and we see people following their guts, doing things that are foolish. They're like, what are they thinking? Do they just think that somehow inside of them they will know the truth always? But it might work for me, we think, when we're facing a similar thing. And David says, there's a better way. There's a different way. What do we see David doing? David says at the very beginning, in verse 16, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. That's a decision of surrender. That's a decision of saying, Lord, you are the one who will take control over my life. Because the word here, you are my Lord, is you are my master. It's an expression of worship. I give myself to you. And what does he discover at the end? You make known to me the path of life. You make known to me. One of the most extraordinary truths that Christianity teaches is that the God of the universe who, who knows subatomic quarks in the name of every star and all of the billions and billions of galaxies actually is interested in us. And he actually talks to us. And he actually wants to give us an understanding of how to live. So much so that he actually becomes one of us in Jesus to show us the way. You make known to me. And what we discover, David says, is that as you make known to me, it is the way of life. It's the way of meaning. The way of purpose. So much better than listening to my heart. In fact, you know, it's interesting to me, like whenever you hear people talk about listening to your heart, they don't say at two in the morning when you can't sleep, listen to your heart. Because at two in the morning when you can't sleep, what is your heart saying? You are going to die. 
you are just wrong in everything. Everything is falling apart. We have all of these voices in us, but we don't have to listen to it. Notice what David says in verse 7. It's, it's translated here slightly wrong. It's, it's probably a better translation of verse 7 is, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel even when my heart speaks to me in the night. Even as all of these things are kicking up dust, I don't have to let that be the truth that determines me because I've decided that God is my Lord and so I will listen to his counsel, what he says. In verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. It's like he's lost in the woods. He doesn't know where to go, but there is the North Star. And he knows that no matter how lost he feels, as long as he navigates by that North Star, everything is going to be okay. He says, that's God. God has spoken to me. He has told me how to live. Even if it doesn't make sense to me in the moment, I have set him before me. And he has made known to me the path of life. Isn't that what we want? Someone who knows more than we do to tell us how to live. And here is someone who knows way more than we do. And he shows us the path of life. In worshiping the true and God, we come to experience a guidance that is better than our deepest intuitions. And secondly, as we worship a, the true and good God, we come to experience a joy that is far more fulfilling than our, our dreams. So again, what is the conclusion? He says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. I believe each of us are born with an ache. Each of us are born with some sort of longing, some sort of sense that we need something that's not within us before we are made whole. We might use different words for that, a longing for joy or fulfillment or satisfaction or, or happiness. Whatever it is, usually at some point as we're growing up, we attach to those feelings some sort of sense of what it would look like to get it, some sort of dream that will offer us that fulfillment. Maybe that dream has to do with some sort of success, like being the next NBA superstar or, or doing great with work or making lots of money or, or having the family that we've always dreamed of. Whatever it is, we just believe that if we can get there, then we will feel complete. And as we grow up, one of two things happens. Either we don't get it, like, we thought that's what we want, but we just realize we can't do it. Something stands in the way, and we feel disappointed. Or we do. And sometimes even when we do get it, it's great, and there are things that we really like about it, and yet we find, even still, it's not enough. It's not really what we are longing for. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what ordinarily would be called unsuccessful marriages or trips and so on. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There is always something we grasp at in that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It has turned out to be a good job, but 
it has evaded us. Do you know what he's talking about? David offers a different testimony. Again, the choice that we see at the very beginning, not only is you are my Lord, but verse 2 also says, I have no good apart from you. He is saying, you are my good. You are the dream that I have. You are what I am most longing for. And unlike every other situation that ultimately unsatisfies, what does he say at the very end? In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your presence, there's something remarkable just in those words that the God of the universe would choose to draw near to us. This is something I think that distinguishes Christianity from almost every other religion. It is not us somehow trying to climb our way and hoping someday to find God. God reaches down to us and makes himself known to us and he gives himself to us in Jesus. He is present to us in love. And, and what the psalmist says is as you draw near to me and give yourself to me, I experience fullness. No longing, no aching remaining, fullness of joy. He, he speaks of this also in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. My life is beautiful because I have you. And doesn't that make sense? That if, if God makes us and he made us for himself, that we would always find everything in this world less than what it should be because we're longing for something that is greater, something that is eternally, something that is infinitely beautiful, that we're longing for God. And David says, if you seek him in worship, you will find in his presence is fullness of joy. As we come to worship the true and good God, we come to experience a joy that is greater than any of the dreams that we have are capable of. And finally, we see that as we come to worship the true and good God, we are given a security that no threat can take away. So again, he says, at your right hand, at the conclusion of verse 11, are pleasures forevermore. And it's that last word that's especially important, forevermore. Because even the great things in this world all are stained by something that we're very aware of even though we try to forget it, and that is we're going to lose it. The possessions we love will fade or be broken or be taken away. The people we love will move away or will die. As we become old, we will lose our capacities and then the rest will be taken away from us when we die. And we are haunted by that reality. We are haunted by that awareness, and, and so much of what drives us, the, the trying to get more money in our bank accounts, trying to make sure we're as healthy as possible, so much of what drives us is our trying to keep that loss away from us, but deep down we know it's impossible, and so that's why so many of us are anxious, which is such a contrast to the security that David expresses about pleasures that will be forevermore. How does he experience that? He says in verse 1, O God, in you I take refuge. 
Again, this is an expression of worship. This is saying, Lord, I'm going to entrust myself to you. I give myself to you and allow you to be the one who protects me and takes care of me. And, and with that comes this confidence. I mean, it's extraordinary, actually, the confidence he expresses. We see it also in verses 9 and 10. He talks about being glad and his whole being rejoices. And notice what he says after in verse 9. My flesh dwells secure. I'm secure. I have no need for fear. In fact, notice what he says. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol is another word for the place of death. Which is a remarkable thing for David to say. As David knows the statistic that you and I know, that 10 out of 10 people die. He's not just believing that somehow he will be the one who lives forever. And yet he is saying somehow. Somehow, even with death, that's not going to end things. Somehow, you are not going to just leave my soul to the grave. Somehow, there will be pleasures that last even beyond death. I am secure in that. Why? Because he knows his God. He knows that he has a God who is committed to him in love. And though he doesn't know how it's going to be, he is confident that even death is not going to be where God abandons him. And if we know where the Bible goes, we know that David is exactly right. Because what do we see? We see a God who is so committed in love to his people that he becomes one of us, who is so committed that he dies for us. He's so committed that he raises his son from the dead, conquering death itself, so that death will not have the final word for any of us who are in him. And what that means is those who place their hope in Jesus, those who look to him for refuge, are secure. We need to be clear here. We're not saying that Christians somehow are able to escape all suffering. You and I know, know that's not true. We are in a broken world, and there's grief, and there are things that we lose in the presence. But what we are able to do is, with David, say somehow. Somehow, even though things are painful right now, I know that God will make all things right. Somehow, even though it aches and I don't see it, I know that God will wipe away every tear of mine. Somehow in the end, the pleasures and the delight that God gives me, I know, will be forevermore. And I can be secure without fear. Do you see, do you see how the answer that Christianity offers, it invites us to a better way? that it actually gives us an answer, a good answer to the question, how should I spend my life? It says, worship means saying to God, you are my Lord. I, I surrender to you, and as we do, we come to recognize that this God is a God who shows us the way, and that as we follow him, we experience the path of life. Worship means turning to God and saying, you are my good. I will seek you above all else. I value you above all else. And as we do, we come to see God making himself present to us, giving himself to us, and we find in him the fullness of joy. 
Worship means saying, Lord, you are my refuge. I entrust myself to you, and I allow you to be the one who protects me. And as we do, we come to recognize that we have a God who is so deeply, passionately committed in love that we are secure, and the pleasures He gives us are forevermore. Christianity says, yes, there is an answer to this. How should you spend your life? Spend your life on God, because why would you want to spend your life on anything less? I realize that there is a lot that's being stated here, and there's a lot to unpack. And it doesn't surprise me if this morning right now you still find yourself uncertain, unsure whether this is what you believe, and um, I want to honor that. But I would like to ask you to at least consider, what if, what if what this psalm is saying, what David is saying from his own experience is actually true? What would it look like for you if you came to believe that the way to answer that question is that you spend your life on God, that worshiping God is what matters most, what would it look like? And what would God need to show you to convince you that this is the truth? As we always do, as we conclude, we're going to spend some time turning to the God we've been talking to. And I invite you, if you don't know what to think of this, to use this as a time to ask God to show himself to you. This also is a good time if we feel like it's appropriate to to confess our sins, where we've turned our hearts away from God instead of turning towards God. And in a few minutes, after some time of silence, I will lead us in prayer. So would you please join with me in prayer?